This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 4th, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, online news editor Catherine Matisik is here with a story on two mountaineers trying to recreate a NASA twin study that sent one twin into space and kept the other one here, this time on Mount Everest. And Ronald Kroger joins us to talk about his paper on what the nanoscale structure of bone can tell us about its amazing toughness and flexibility. Now we have Catherine Matisik, an online news editor for Science. She's here with a story on a study that sent half of two twin pairs up Mount Everest. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Sarah. This study we're talking about today is a follow-up on one conducted in space when one half of a twin set was launched into orbit. What were the researchers looking for in that study? So that study, you may remember, was released to a lot of fanfare Mm -hmm. uh, back in 2015 when it was launched. U.S. astronaut Scott Kelly spent an entire year on the International Space Station in orbit, and researchers saw this as an opportunity to compare changes in his DNA and also changes in his organ function, immune function, and a whole host of other physiological changes to those of his twin brother, Mark Kelly. And they both been in space before. So it wasn't space versus no space. Exactly. Mark was a former astronaut who had spent time in space, but he was down on the ground below while Scott was up at the International Space Station. So this was kind of testing one particular trip rather than space exposure. Exactly. That's right. Okay. But now why are researchers wanting to look at a similar setup using Mount Everest? What are they hoping to show with that? So what was really interesting about this uh, space study, you know, in addition to a bunch of other issues, obviously, you know, you're never going to have perfect controls or perfect setup. You just have, you know, two individuals that are exposed to different environments environments and different stressors. But what that study found, one of the early results that came out of that, is that six months after Scott Kelly returned to Earth, Mm -hmm. changes to the expression of many of his genes, which at first I think there were thousands of genes that changed their expression, 
After six months, 7% of those remained. Okay. And those were related to immune function, DNA repair, and bone formation. In particular, one that was really interesting was his body's response to insufficient oxygen. Okay. Yeah, there's a, there's a key one. Yeah. And so, so what researchers wanted to know is, is this, are these changes actually because he was in space or were they simply because he was exposed to a lot of extreme stressors, one of which is low oxygen? Mm -hmm. And so a researcher who was already on that study decided that he was going to try and launch a control for this other study. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I say control, you know, with air quotes, because, right. again, there's you know, no launching, of, actually. <laughs> right, right. Um, but but also, you know, none of this is going to be, you know, perfect replication because right. there are tons of variables. But the basic outlines are the same. One twin stays at, say, sea level, and the other twin goes way up high into an extreme kind of grueling experience. That's right. I think the peak of Mount Everest or the summit is about 8,850 meters. So it's pretty extreme there. Oxygen levels are low. Uh, the range of temperatures varies wildly. Not only do you have extreme cold temperatures, but in certain parts of the mountain, especially when the sun is out, you can get temperatures of 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And they're not airlifting these people up to the top of the mountain and saying, look at this, one versus two. They're they're having them climb the mountain. Oh, no. Yeah, you have <laughs> to climb if you're going to get up there. So, so there are two twin sets. One is a set of 20-year-old, I believe, twins who are originally from Colorado. And then one is a set of twins from Argentina. Okay. Um, now, the Argentinian twins are actually both expert climbers. One of them, the one who's going to make this ascent at Everest, and actually, they're they're up there right now. Okay, yeah, they're, yeah. I think I think they may be at Camp Two. I'm not sure or Camp One. So the Argentinians. This is the older twin set. Willie Benegas has actually summited Mount Everest eleven times. Wow. Um, and then his companion Matt Moniz, uh, who I believe is a sophomore now at Dartmouth College, he set a bunch of records both in the U.S. and around the world for his climbs. Okay, so a Coloradan and an Argentinian. That's right. Are climbing together. They're both half of a twin. Set. What are their non-climbing twins up to? Well, so they're non-climbing twins, and I, I say that with sort of a smile because they actually are both climbers, yeah. but they have elected to stay at sea level for this uh, journey. What's going to happen is the twins that go up on Everest, they are going to collect blood samples, they're going to collect saliva samples, and they're actually going to collect samples of their own microbiomes on different parts of their body, mm -hmm. I think from the face, from the eyes, and also from their stool. Mm -hmm. And then is the same thing happening at sea level? That's right. This sounds this sounds like it's in process, so we're probably not going to hear about results. But let's talk a little bit about the study design. How closely does this mimic the space study? So it is going to be done according to the same protocol mm -hmm. in terms of what samples are going to be collected, how they're logged. There are a couple of additional challenges, believe it or not, to mm -hmm. this side of the study. And that's because collecting these samples at high altitude is incredibly tough. Once you get beyond a certain altitude, you know, as you experience low oxygen, your blood tends to thicken up. And so sometimes oh. you can just poke a needle in and you're not going to, to get any blood out. Oh, and wow. so, you know, they're a little bit worried about that, but they're going to do their best. Another issue, and this is something that we're still in the process of reporting, so I'm not 100% mm -hmm. sure, 
But right now, it looks like the two climbers, we're not sure if they're going to be using supplemental oxygen or not right. on the last part of the push. And so that could change the ease with which they can get these samples. But then finally, sending the samples back is actually a journey in itself. All of the samples that are collected are going to have to go down the mountain as fast as possible oh, using local Sherpas yeah. who are then going to helicopter this uh, insulated container to the capital at Kathmandu where they're going to be processed and then shipped off to New York for analysis. Mm. That's kind of a journey. And anyway, the, to put the final touch on this is that, you know, because of where these climbers are going to be taking their samples, I think they're doing two at Everest Base Camp, which is about 5,300 meters above sea level, one at this place called Camp 3, mm -hmm. which is, at, I think, 7,200 meters. And then they're going to try to do one at Summit. Yeah. So you're going to have four chances to get samples. Mm -hmm. And then those are going to be compared mm -hmm. uh, to their twins at sea level. How long is it going to take for them to go up the mountain? That is a really good question. A lot of it depends on weather. Oh. Um, they, the, the pair started their journey. I think they reached base camp on April 18th. Okay. And they're currently in the middle of what are called rotations, mm -hmm. where they're acting acclimatizing themselves by going from base camp up to camp one and camp two and back down again. And so if everything went according to plan, and see, right now we're tracking them on yeah. Twitter and, and we're tracking May 1st. them on a couple of apps and it's May 1st. And to the best of my knowledge, they may have gone up to camp three, mm -hmm. which is the last point before you go to the summit. Yeah. And now they're back at camp two. And sometime in the next week, I think they're going to make that summit attempt. Sounds very arduous. Yeah, it's it's something that I would I would probably not be up for myself. <laughs> One caveat I wanted to mention is that these are not identical twins. I think that oh, that's pointed out in the story. Yes. And the ones that went into space were identical, right? Yeah, and this is a really important point. This is another reason why you know this study is not going to be able to look as comprehensively mm -hmm. at changes to the DNA because fraternal twins, not identical twins, only share 50% of their DNA. But the bottom line is, even if this doesn't give us everything that we want, researchers are saying that it could lead to some pretty interesting insights for how the body adapts to stressors like low oxygen. Okay. All right, Catherine, we have one other extreme science That's story right. we're just going to touch on really briefly. And this is about the longest, straightest route around the globe uh, via the oceans. Okay, am I getting that right? I think you are. Um, so <laughs> actually, you know, I take it back. You are. Okay. What you're describing is something called a great circle. Okay. And this is a continuous path around the entire globe in a straight line. So basically, if you were to chop the earth in half and draw a line at that point, that's called a great circle. And what one Reddit poster, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're getting, we're getting into going the, all the way to extremes Reddit. here. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're going into the deep, dark recesses here. But a Reddit poster about five years ago had this hypothesis that the longest line like this that would involve ocean travel, continu yeah, continuous ocean journey was from this uh, little town on the coast, on the southern coast of Pakistan, mm -hmm. all the way to northeastern Russia. And it would sort of thread, I think, you know, from Pakistan, you go past Oman and down in between Madagascar and continental Africa. Mm -hmm. And then you dive in the little uh, gap between South America and Antarctica. And then you come up through the Aleutian Islands 
until you hit Russia. Now, this doesn't sound like a straight line. No, it doesn't sound like a straight line. One, and two, how long? How long of a trip is that? That is a good question. So this record-breaking line is 32,090 kilometers long. This is posted on Reddit, but now we're talking about it because research has surfaced that shows this person was right. That's right. So an engineer, I believe, and a physicist decided they were going to see if they could indeed prove this to the extent that they could, Mm -hmm. true or false. They used a huge database from NOAA to figure out where all of these points were on the Earth in terms of are they on land or are they on sea? And then they tried to brute force the answer by looking at every possible circle on the entire planet. Unfortunately, (laughs) that meant they would have had to examine about five trillion points. So they employed a special algorithm that sort of optimized for these points and tested different lines against other lines. And using this program, it took them about 10 minutes, and they discovered that the Reddit poster was indeed correct. Is the next step for someone to actually sail this route? It could be. Uh, The researchers actually don't recommend it in their paper. (laughs) They also don't recommend driving what they found to be the longest single straight line land route, which is an 11,241-kilometer path stretching from eastern China all the way to western Portugal. So don't drive it. That's what they say. Is that just because there's probably, there's not roads or why would they? I mean, you know, yeah, not roads is a problem. Potholes is another. (laughs) But the third issue that they actually did bring up is because the satellite data that they were using for their study had a resolution of 1.8 kilometers squared. So basically that's great, but it's also kind of rough. You could hide a lake in that. You could hide a lake in that or a stream or something like that. Okay, Catherine. Well, let's talk about what else is on the site this week. We have a story about why we might get itchier as we age and an interview with a new scientific advisor for the HBO show Westworld. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on the EPA's so-called Secret Science Act and an update on the latest CRISPR court battle. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisek is an online editor for the news site. You can read about the stories we talked about today at sciencemag.org news. Stay tuned for an interview with Roland Kroger on the fractal organization of bone. Bone is very strong and very flexible. But when you mix its two primary components together, things like the organic protein collagen and minerals that contain phosphorus and calcium, you mix them together, you don't get these extreme properties. The organization of the materials that make up the bone is very important. Today, Roland Kroger joins us to talk about his group study that takes a much deeper look at the organization of bone using tools usually reserved for material science. Welcome, Roland. Hello. Okay, so in this paper, you describe the structure of bone in a new level of detail. What technologies enabled you or what, what procedure enabled you to, to take this really, really close look at how bone is structured on the nanoscale? Since my background is uh, strongly inspired by material science and materials physics, I thought maybe we can actually approach it in a similar way. 
So we use the same techniques that we use to prepare thin sections in semiconductors or magnetic materials or any of these kind of materials, being very careful not to in introduce any damage. And then we uh, identified uh, the best approach for doing the imaging. So that actually led us then to the tomography work using scanning transmission electron microscopy and tomographic reconstruction that we applied. We were actually focusing on techniques that would allow us to look at the details of the nanoscale structure, in particular of the mineral phase in bone. And what, what questions were you trying to answer here? What, what's kind of the outstanding issues in this field, like understanding how bone is structured? Okay, so one of the items of interest or questions of interest here was um, how on the nanometer level actually the crystals look like and how they organize. So what are the patterns of organization, so to say. So you have a very fine resolution in three dimensions of this mineral uh, substance inside the bone. So what were you able to see with this technique? Okay, so that provides us with a resolution of about one nanometer. And we found actually the mineral phase to be constituted of elongated uh, crystals, particles, which then organize in what we call a helical pattern. So we can actually look at the various, the different projections, directions, and then from the images we obtain, we developed a model to explain how the minerals actually organized in the context of the organic phase, which in bone is predominantly collagen. Was there any surprise um, in the way these things were formed or arranged? In the literature, there had been reported uh, basically two patterns. So if you look at uh, electron microscopy images um, of bone, you find these two patterns. One is what we call a filamentous, elongated crystal structure. And the other motif, we called it, is the so-called lacy motif, where you see this kind of a holy structure. We identified a third motif, which is uh, what we call a rosette motif. We see five nanometer, about five nanometer sized uh, nanocrystals, which are arranged in a kind of spiral organization pattern. And that actually raised our suspicion or, or our interest, because we, we didn't expect that motif to be there. So we did a, this more in-depth characterization that I was just mentioning. And uh, we happen actually to uh, also be able to create these electron microscopy lamella, these thin slices across sections that are set sandwich sections of different orientation within bone. So we have two motors actually follow uh, in a sequence. So we see the lacy and then the filamentous and so on. What we found with our technique is that actually these motives are not perpendicular to each other, but they're actually rotated by 60 degrees. And in fact, this rosette motive that I mentioned before is actually the 90 degree motive that you would see when you cut the filamentous motive that I mentioned before at 90 degree. So what is describing, you know, at this level of detail, what does that get you in terms of understanding the properties of bone better? We can actually see that the minerals are actually highly, or the mineral particles are highly entangled. So that was one of those points of discussion in previous works. What kind of morphology does the mineral phase have? And uh, we know from the organic phase, from the collagen, that it's highly connected. So it's cross-linked, but nothing was known along that line uh, with respect to the mineral phase. So one of the key findings we made was actually that the mineral phase itself is also highly structured and networked. And it shows, again, a kind of a helical organizational pattern, very similar to what we've seen 
uh, for the collagen. So if you just remove the mineral phase, just look at the collagen, you also see that it follows a kind of helical pattern all the way from the nanoscale to the macroscopic bone. You mentioned in the title that there's something fractal about bone. Can you talk about what that means? So that this helical structure, this arrangement of both the organic and the inorganic phase, the mineral phase, in this helical fashion is something that we observe from the nanometer level upwards. So we see that the same kind of pattern we see on several levels, all the way up to the macroscopic bone. And we identified something like 12 levels of hierarchy here, a huge number of hierarchical levels. So to give you an idea, if you just compare that, for example, with an individual living in a room, in a house, in a neighborhood, in a city, etc. So if you extend that uh, to the 12th level, you're actually at the size of a galaxy. Huh. I never thought of it that way. How does that hierarchy, how is it fractal? I mean, obviously, in your in your example of where I live, that's not fractal. But in your example of the bone, some of that is fractal? Yeah, that's right. That's the difference, of course, uh, between the analogy I gave you and the, <laughs> the structure of bone, that it actually has also the same organizational pattern that it follows over so many different length scales as well. And uh, this is something that you find actually described in the context of uh, mathematical works uh, in the term. This is what the term fractal actually means. So it's also identified as self-similar. So you have basically an object. If you zoom in, you see that the uh, the same pattern occurs at higher magnification. You zoom, zoom in further, you see the same pattern over and over again. So that's actually what we were reminded at or reminded of when we looked at the structure of bone. So that's why we called it a fractal-like. So it's not exactly fractal, but it follows a similar pattern from the nanoscale to the macroscopic scale. And so what are some special properties of bone that maybe people in material science might be interested in mimicking? Now, that's a good question. Bone has uh, remarkable properties in the sense that it actually combines two mutually exclusive properties, namely toughness and hardness. So to give you an example, the archetypical tough material would be rubber and the archetypical hard material would be diamond. Obviously, they are mutually exclusive. So rubber, you can stretch for quite a way before it ruptures, whereas diamond obviously will not sustain any further extension um, or massive extension. But it's very hard. But rubber is obviously not very hard. So what bone does is actually interestingly combining these kind of two exclusive properties. So it's actually tough and at the same time it is hard. This is obviously something, if we understand the way that nature actually realizes this, then I think uh, material science would be highly interested. So for building materials, for example, that would be interesting. Of course, we haven't actually tested these concepts in the context of new materials, but we believe what we find might provide a key to understand why bone is actually not only a combination of the properties of the organic phase and the mineral phase, but that the nano-level structure plays an important role in explaining why bone has uh, such superior mechanical properties. So there's something about the structure that's conveying these properties. Exactly. Besides material science, how else can um, this understanding of the fine structure, the nanoscale structure of bone, be useful? So there are uh, lots of research done in the area of trying to mimic bone growth from the bone cell level on. We definitely show, and we were not the first one to postulate that, that actually the uh, the hierarchical structure, the organizational structure, is actually playing a key role 
in the final mechanical property. So anybody who would like to reproduce bone or produce materials for bone replacement would need to take into account this kind of organization of the mineral phase as well. And another area where this knowledge can be quite useful and important is uh, in any research area that deals with decay of bone, for example, in forensics or in archaeology. Yeah, I guess we should mention that this is human bone that you're working with, right? Exactly, yes. What is really important here is, uh, is to see that whether the mineral phase is predominantly within the organic or outside the organic. So we, we believe that our work is actually reconciling uh, the previous understanding of the nanoscale morphology of the mineral phase. So there was some debate whether or not there was this inner penetration. So you have your collagen and then you have your mineral phase. And was the mineral phase crossing over to a neighboring mineral phase? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's that's what I would say. And actually, beyond that, I mean, I forgot to mention that one of the inspirations I got was from experiment that was performed, interestingly, during a BBC program called The, the Secrets of Bones. And... Uh, this experiment was actually looking at skulls. In one uh, sample, the organic phase was completely removed by some technique, and in the other uh, example, the mineral phase was completely removed. And what was quite interesting to see is that actually in both cases, the volume and the shape of the skulls remained exactly the same. As, as long as the collagen is hydrated, it stays actually in the same way. And the, the reason for that is because it's highly cross-linked. The collagen is actually forming this network, but the similar thing must hold also for the mineral phase. So that was actually one of the inspiring uh, <laughs> pictures. You, you found another secret, though, <laughs> well, after watching the Well, show. sometimes that shows that watching TV is not that bad. Not always that bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Roland Kroger, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you very much, Sarah. Roland Kroger is a professor at the Department of Physics at the University of York. He and his colleagues write about nanoscale bone structure this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or listen to us on the science site at sciencemag.org slash podcast where you can also find links to the research and news stories discussed in each episode. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.